любезный, совсем не под пару. Well, hello and welcome to the Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova. The Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and patrons who give monthly donations to help us do our programming and pay Rusana and Dasha. So if you want to help out, and I hope you do, um, please go to EurasianNot.org and find the Patreon button or go directly to the Patreon site at patreon.com slash and become a monthly patron and help us keep going. Um, so uh, before we get started today, uh, we have some preliminary results from the survey and I encourage everyone listening to take a moment to go fill out the survey. You can find it if you go to EurasianNot.org. There's a pop-up Thing where you can press and find the survey. And we'll also put a link to it in the show notes for this episode. Um, but we so far we have about, I don't know, 70 respondents. We certainly want more, but just to give some sense of what people are saying. So about a third of, of, of listeners, or at least people who filled out this survey, uh, found us through social media. Um, and a quarter of them, which I think is even more interesting, found out about it through word of mouth. Um, and about 40% of people who've answered so far are involved in education, mostly higher education in some form or fashion, which isn't all that surprising since the survey itself has been shared on social media and most of the people I'm connected with are involved in academia. Um, but more interesting, uh, what people would like to hear more of, um, one is more environmental history. Uh, so maybe we should maybe think about that. I told you we should do an episode about... <laughs> <laughs> about the uh what is it called about the waste management issues in ah Russia. that's a very yes. good idea actually that's a very good idea maybe we should really look into that because i um i i'm very quite fascinated with garbage and how <laughs> and how societies deal with it especially after doing the gift for stalin which is about how yes <laughs> about Obviously. sewage right <laughs> so um so that's interesting yeah maybe we should really seriously consider that um people also want to hear more from non-academics which is nice to hear. So maybe we'll have to find some. Um, and yeah, and that that is also coming. Yeah, yes. yeah, definitely. That's right. You're working on something with non-academics, which is nice. Um, and they want people who uh, guests who aren't from the West, uh, which um, we I, I don't know if we've done which we tried, yeah. which we really tried, but. Uh, in this political climate, um, a lot of people are afraid to speak to Western um, journalists or podcasters. I think I, I, I try. I, I personally contacted at least five people who uh, live and work in Russia, and they all said no out of fear for persecution. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So you know, we'll have to maybe double down our efforts. Uh, maybe find some people who, you know, are part of the Eurasian world that aren't Russian. Um, yes, yeah. they, I'm, I was happy to know that people do like and want more narrative pieces, which I think is great. Um, I was a bit worried about that. Um, <laughs> uh, you need that external, uh, <laughs> a confidence boost. Definitely, definitely. Mm -hmm. Especially since, as you know, they, they take so much work to put together. I, I'm hoping people like them. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, they also want more in-depth interviews, which um, certainly that's totally fine. And we'll have that uh, not as much as we used to when we were at SRB podcast, but we, that will always be part of our, our kind of wheelhouse um, and a greater focus on peripheral reg regions, which I hope, thanks to you, Rusana, the, the Far East uh, series that we've been doing kind of fits right into that. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, there is a lot more peripheral regions <laughs> we can work with, for sure. Um, I'd be really uh, interested in doing something on non-Russian uh, Russia residents, uh, doing like a, 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 a series of episodes on indigenous issues with indigenous people. But the problem right now is like really getting people who are willing to talk to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, again, that's something that we need to consider. And it's a great idea and actually fits right into the episode we have this time, which is about indigenous people. And uh, this is an interview with Bruce Grant, the anthropologist from NYU. And Rusana, since you're 
the mastermind of first the Far East th- series, but also you're the one who quickly put Bruce on the list for us to talk to. So I- I'm kind of curious, like, what was your reasoning behind that? Well, I just wanted to use the Eurasian nod to get <laughs> to talk to Bruce. Uh, that's for that's reason number one. Uh, but jokes aside, I think that in the Soviet House of Culture is a seminal uh, work that influenced um, everyone who works on indigenous issues uh, and more generally who works on um, Soviet and post-Soviet um, history and culture. And uh, this work was written almost 30 years ago. Um and I thought it would be really cool to revisit Bruce's work uh, after such a long period and to kind of pick his brain about how he sees the book today and um, whether he still thinks that his conclusions hold true and, uh, you know, learn more about what he thinks about um, indigeneity um, in Russia today because he's a leading authority on the topic. And as you said, it this book that we're mostly talking about, a book that was written almost 30 years ago, which is something we don't normally do, but I think we should do more of these kind of, you know, what do you think about this book you wrote so long ago? But I'm actually curious, like, what, what stood out, like, when you think about that book today, is there something in particular about it that still kind of sticks with you or influences how you go about what you do? Um, sure. I mean, uh, I read this book uh, when I was doing my master's in St. Petersburg. Uh, I, I, I did a master's with a focus on uh, the Arctic and um, wrote about indigenous people in Siberia. So Bruce's work was a must. And I think what struck me most at the time, uh, it kind of broke uh, my stereotypical assumptions about the relationship between indigenous people and the Soviet state, um, which was which was that indigenous people definitely viewed that experience as repressive, uh, and they were happy to kind of get out of the Soviet uh, Union in the 90s. And perhaps that's how some of the people truly felt in the early 90s, there was definitely um, uh, indigenous communities in Russia experienced a revival uh, for at least a few years after the collapse of the Soviet Union. People had high hopes for uh, emancipation, for cultural revitalization, for more political um, freedoms. Um, Yeah, but Bruce's work actually tells us that indigenous people, at least the Nif, where he, um, with whom he um, did his research, they saw themselves as integral to the Soviet project, uh, as, you know, full participants to this uh, social experiment. And that's what was really surprising to me and that really um, turned around um, how I thought about indigenous communities and, um, you know, their experience of being in the Soviet Union. No, I I totally sympathize with that because, you know, some of the most impactful books that have stuck with me over the years are exactly those that have basically taken my assumptions and either completely turned them around or complicated them. And, you know, that's kind of what we do here on this show, right? We're trying to complicate or at least challenge all of the assumptions that we might have about the various issues we talk about. So I'm, I'm glad. I'm, I'm sure Bruce is, will be very happy to hear how this book has stuck in your brain all these years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a must for anyone who studies um, uh, indigeneity in Russia, for sure. And you know, back in 2015, when I was doing my master's, never ever could I imagine that I'd be interviewing Bruce about his work, like <laughs> a few years later. So, well, let's well let's jump into things. Let me introduce Bruce. So, Bruce Grant is a professor and chair of anthropology at New York University. He's the author of several books, including In the Soviet House of Culture, A Century of Perestroikas, which was published by Princeton University Press in 1995. 
And The Captive and the Gift, Cultural Histories of Sovereignty in Russia and the Caucasus, which was published by Cornell University Press in 2009. His current research explores the early 20th century Pan-Caucus journal Molo Nasreddin, which ran from 1905 to 1931, as an idiom for rethinking contemporary Eurasian space and authoritarian rule within it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to see what he does with that when he when he finishes it. But at any rate, now here is Bruce Grant. So your first book, written almost 30 years ago, in the Soviet House of Culture, you conducted your research among the uh, Nivhi, an indigenous group that's in northern Sakhalin, Tell, uh, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about them, who they are, and the context for your study? Sure, please. Nivhya or Nivgu, which would be the, the plural in their own language, um, are one of a large number of indigenous peoples in Siberia and the Russian Far East, of course, a, a kind of a zone of containment we use today because of the 20th century, but simply we would have just normally called them an East Asian people. Um and I think that would be still my preferred way of thinking about them. They were and are have kind of stayed demographically fairly stable over the last, at least as people have been counting them over the last two centuries or so, around 5,000, a little up, a little down, divided fairly evenly between Sakhalin Island, which for listeners who don't know it is kind of a mirror image of Vancouver Island on the other side of the Pacific in my own native Canada, and kind of evenly divided between Sakhalin and the Amur mainland. A number, even despite this small group, a number of different dialects thought of as a language isolate, uh, sometimes thought of as part of a Paleoasiatic family. Um, fascinating philosophies of human animal encounters, human environment encounters. Um, and and then after that, those are some of the simple basics, but it really just depends on who you ask about them. Um, I started with them in a fairly garden variety way. Um, I had never actually intended to study them. I originally was going to do my work in Moscow on uh, on Soviet political culture on the Komsomol. Uh, and uh, the head of the Institute of Ethnography at that time told me that that real anthropologist didn't work in c- cities. But... Um, so for, in a variety of ways, I set off to work there and, uh, and my original thought was simply just to think about the existence of a, a kind of a, a set of conversations across what might be thought of as new worlds and Soviet worlds. But of course, that, that then takes us in so many different directions because if you, the standard thing from an all pretty much all Russian sources from the 19th century to the through the Soviet period, with almost very, very few exceptions, is that these people are children of nature, they're in need of advancement, um, and there's just this immediate sense of a continuum or a timeline or a trajectory or a developmental scale and so forth, long even before evolutionism and so forth, just there was always that sense of enjoyment of thinking of we found these people who are so much lesser than us and we're going to think about our own magnitude and in, in comparison to them. But that's a very, that's one fork in the road. And that's very different from another fork in the road, which is, which at least in English and Russian at the time when I was starting my own work, and this was hardly innovative on my part, it's, it's anyone would have stumbled over this. These are people who are really quite you know, well-known if you ask a Chinese person or a Japanese person or a Korean person, because or at least a historian, fairly well-known in Chinese sources since uh, the 12th and 13th centuries, um, absolutely well-known in Japanese sources of the last few centuries, uh, quite a lot of intermarriage with uh, Japanese and Koreans and Chinese. Um, they were fishermen, hunters, but also tradesmen. So they were active in trading with uh, the Americans as, as well, who are, of course, fairly prominent demographically in the Russian Far East prior to uh, the October Revolution. But still to this day, there's this tension of, are these people kind of an echo of us, where us is somehow still this Euro-American slash Russian notion of already a language of indigenism versus, and this is where we haven't really still quite made it, uh, an East Asian people, pure and simple. They're not indigenous. They happen to be smaller in size than other people. They just happen to be an East Asian people. 
And they did this, they did that, they have this worldview, they have this philosophy, they're an interesting group, they have their own internal differences. Those are two very different ways of thinking about these people and of thinking about this part of the world. And, um, and that is still to me what makes it exciting as a place to study and think about. Um, let me ask you about that because it, it kind of connects to the place of Siberia in the Far East itself and the Russian imagination, right? You, you talked about how, oh, these people are kind of considered children and we need to acculturate them. That's a very standard story that you find in anthropology in many, many places around the world. But you talk about this, that Siberia plays a particular place in the Russian imagination. Can you talk about that and how it relates to the uh, Nif? Sure, of course. I think this is certainly kind of a well-rehearsed idiom of Siberia. And even if you grow up well outside of Russian uh, Soviet spheres, so many people around the world who have never been there have a sense of Siberia as a fearsome place to which you'll get sent if you act poorly as a child and so forth. And But I would extend that even in a simple way, just to the fact that it's a big place. Um, and it's logical that not many people have been there if you don't have the population pressure on it. And any place which is not well known to people will always be subject to a certain kind of imagination and therefore exaggeration and imprecision, but also fantasy. And um, that fantasy for me is both a sense of, um, is always, and this is where you have to forgive me in, in a scholarly sense of, um, it's, to me, it's a kind of a world of stratigraphy, right? And, and what I mean by that phrase is the graphing of of stratums, right? A graphing of a certain hierarchy. It's a it's a pageant of hierarchy is what I think of as Siberia. A place where we see hierarchy being performed. And what I mean by that is people love to think about uh, Siberia, first and foremost, I would say, because most Russians, by my experience, don't exoticize it in the same way that non-Russians do. Um, it's a it's a kind of a scene of wealth. It's a sense of satisfaction and security in one sense, because we, in this collective sense of we, have this great expanse of resources on which we could draw. Um, at the same time, it's a sense of stratigraphy because it is a zone of development. And let's and let's appreciate that ninety five percent of most people in Europe and North America aren't exactly thinking of their own indigenous populations either, um, and so they're thinking of it mainly as a sense of hierarchy as a sense as a sense of development that this is this cement this buttresses our own sense of our superiority of our of, our, of ourselves and Ma Ma moscow or petersburg or new york or toronto because we have this vast zone of expanse and when the and when the barbarians come we're still going to have water and mineral resources and trees and lumber and 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 so forth and i think so there's that sense it's this performance of not so. Of course, we can get to the Dostoevsky and the Chekhov and the and say that this was the this is the Alcatraz of which of which Sakhalin Island, of course, which was a centerpiece, uh, a bit of an island Alcatraz, as far away as possible. Even though in fact it's not as far as Chukotka, Kamchatka, and so forth. Nonetheless, it occupied that place. So I see it. A short answer would simply just be that I see it as a Siberia as a sense of an enormous place of performance of this sense of wealth, security in a positive sense, also, also of course, security in a negative sense. Um, you should be lucky that you're not there. You should perform in an obedient way so that you don't get sent there. Um, it's it's an incredibly important idiom, I think. It, it also, too, and you, you spoke a little about, about this in, in your book, that it, it stands in for, and in here I can't help but think of a comparison with the American West, it stands for something quintessentially Russian. It gives the Russianness its meaning, its ruggedness. I mean, falls into what you just said about like exploiting the nature and extracting minerals. Um, does it? What about the, Siberia as this cultural phenomenon for a sense of identity? There's no question when you mention the American West. There is a similar dynamic in the sense that a lot of this performance, of course, comes from a sense of anxiety, right? There's, I mean, I'm not trying to psychoanalyze it. Maybe most people that would never, never occur to them. But I do think there's a, a willfulness, maybe that's a better way of putting it, over a space of such great unknown and therefore a space of such great uncertainty that the fantasy, the, the torque of the fantasy 
increases simply just because people need it to feel better about a world that they simply don't know. And likewise, uh, in the American West, which really was, as we all know so well, was hardly a terra nullius, was occupied by many different kinds of peoples, magnified that even more greatly in the case of Russian Empire, when they were very well aware that there were quite significant civilizations, not just Mesopotamia to the south and east, but China to the far east, Japan to the Far East, and then imagine 1905, the Russo-Japanese War, the very first time that an Asian people defeated a European, but this is, the, I don't think it was the first time, but it was the first time that certainly uh, 19th century and 20th century readers had to encounter this and think about it. So there was a great deal of anxiety about who these peoples were to the East, and in terms of civilizational accomplishment and so forth. In the Soviet House of Culture, you posed this question in the introduction. To what extent did the Nifhi see themselves as being not merely subjects, but part of the Soviet Union? Did you come up with an answer for that? Yes, but I think it was a relatively simple one, perhaps still a, but not so much a disputed one. It's not so much that anyone disputes it, but I do think that we all live in a certain world where we have to swim upstream against certain expectations of how states work and how power works and so forth. And the, my fascination was that, and let's just use myself as an example, that's the simplest one. I spent all of 1989 and all of 1990 in uh, the USSR at that time. And uh, it took me about a year and a half to uh, get permission being in Moscow, going from door to door and trying to be able to go there. And maybe also in retrospect, because no one would ever think I could get there. Um, and and hilariously enough, even though I, I kept knocking on door after door after door after door, I had KGB interviews, I had interviews with various scholars, I had interviews at the Academy of Sciences and, and so forth. It was literally just one day by chance at uh, MGU in the Glavna Estanya in the big main building there, that I uh, just by chance met Anif guy and he and it was just a thing I it wasn't I hadn't it was just by chance I was at another friend's room and here was this guy this law student hanging out and he wasn't even that moved by my story but he just said I'm kind of crying into my beer that I couldn't get permission to go there and he just said he just kind of listened to me calmly and he said wow that's so weird do you want me to call my mom <laughs> and I was like yeah and I looked at him like dude I've just been through 17 interviews over 17 months. I've been grilled by KGB officers, by, the, by people at the Presidium of the Academy of Sciences. I'm going through all this. So I'm jo joking with him. I'm like, I, that's really nice of you, but I don't think your mom is really going to be able to do anything. And he was like, well, I'll call my mom. And, and it was like Moses parting the Red Sea. It, the second people at MGU, the second people at the Academy of Sciences, the Institute of Ethnography, the second they heard that someone else was going to bear responsibility for me legally, um, that this that this uh, family of three um, on, in Noglikia on Sakhalin Island were going to, which is kind of amazing. So, so sorry for that digression, but I always like to give a call, a call out to them. Um, the assumption was after a year and a half of being in Moscow, these people must be pretty pissed off at Soviet power, right? Because they, you can just go through, right? They were, it was really, they were treated like a rubber ball up, down. They were under um, czarist missionaries and mercenaries. They were, they were hounded. They were tried to convert them to Russian Orthodoxy. They were told they were primitive. They were told to stop being shamans. Then in the 1920s, they're celebrated for their shamanism. They're encouraged to speak their language, but that only lasts about seven years. And then, of course, after 1929, the rise of Stalinism, you, have, you start to see not just the rather brutal state policies, but actually about one-third of Nivk men are killed at the height of the purges in the 30s, um, uh, which you can't really understate what that meant to people for decades still today. Um, then after that, it just kept going as they're just being treated as these puppets of, of fairly arbitrary state policies that were not always terribly logical. Most of their people were uh, forced to move around in ways that other peoples were not because just because they were indigenous um, and so on. So I'm assuming they're going to be pretty pissed off, right? But of course, 
not surprisingly, it's not rocket science by the time, not least I got there and I start talking to these people. They just kind of looked at me, most of the people I was interviewing just looked at me politely saying like, seriously, what? You think we're all Che Guevara revolutionaries? Because what? Just because we look different and act different? We went through a lot of similar things that other, I myself was bringing a romance to the table. And I guess what I'm trying to, a romance of resistance that I simply didn't find. And now it didn't mean that they didn't have regrets but also, A, like any people, they weren't just a they, right? They were an extremely very differentiated group of people who had their own political tensions and struggles and varieties of thought and political stances. But also, um, still to this day, I suppose, I, uh, this is what I, all I'm really trying to say. I think the best way to answer this question is just to say that regardless of what I wrote, I think still to this day, most people still want to put First, call Indigenous people Indigenous, which is already an awkward category, right? Even though we need it as a kind of a collective political action to some degree, it's, we're really in a double bind with this term because it's, it was always already an exogenous term of colonial power. Uh, we should just be calling people by their names as far as we, sh- we should be treating people the way we want to be treated. We want to be called by our names, right? And, um, and so there's still 2023 at the time of our interview, right? There's still this quite powerful drive to assume that indigenous people are more virtuous, are more ethical, um, are, but nonetheless also homogeneously virtuous and ethical and resistant to state power. They're kind of the beacon of the future. If we could all just become vegetarian and and meditate more often, maybe we would like, it's that kind of thing. And, and they're still subject to that fantasy. Right. Rusana? Uh, so I, I want to go back to the law student you mentioned uh, earlier and ask, um, I mean, I, I, I don't know if you kept in touch with your interlocutors, with the people you met on Sahalin, uh, but if you did, I wonder, so your story about the NIF uh, ends about 30 years ago, and I wonder how their lives um, changed since then over the last 30 years? Oh my goodness, of course, yeah. Um, Perhaps not so much personally, but, you know, maybe socially. <laughs> it's all interesting. <laughs> but, you know, it, the most direct answer is that they really entered a, uh, a whirlwind of, of very dramatic changes, some of in, um, in 1992, and some of them were general to the entire Russian Far East, and some of them were specific to indigenous peoples, right? Uh, No different than any other inhabitants of the Russian Far East, they were witness to these enormous demographic shifts, the withdrawal of state services from smaller communities, uh, a focus on urban settings, large and small, that could, you know, that the state could better accommodate. The fishing village in which I was working, for example, had no working road most of the year and had a helicopter service once a day. And that's, that's pretty expensive. No surprise. So it's not, it wasn't a conspiracy theory or anything that the state said, look, we, we can't afford this. We're not going to do this. And that meant that a lot of people shifted out of that small village uh, and so forth. Uh, some of that is normal and is covered by the fantastic works now of Dotsa Janowska in Oxford, her work on what has now become a world of emptiness after these, in the, uh, all of these uh, across former Soviet space of this uh, march of urbanization. Um, and so this great shift in infrastructure and state services, and of course, what that meant to families and communities and um and certainly some improvements to infrastructure cosmetically, uh, places look better, they look better every time I go, but still living awfully modestly. Um, and with infrastructure almost exclusively invested in resource exploitation, right? So, so there's a massive infrastructure available to oil development and oil extraction, but still, for example, I just can't get over that um, still to this day, there's no actual functioning road between Nogliki and Aha. This is a 500 kilometer stretch of this island that has been the subject of some of the of, of the biggest oil and cash boom in the former Soviet Union. Um, and they still have not built a, a road there. And it's not because they haven't invested in the towns, in people's lives in the towns. It's just that there's no immediate political gain 
for any um, for any part of uh, resource extraction for them to build this road, and it's actually a fairly dangerous road to travel if you've ever been on it, um, uh, which Rusana perhaps has from her great research. Can I ask how many? What what's the population number of this group? If you do, you have a sense. Uh, look, on Sakhalin, it's still about 2,500 people. and they're But they're joined by uh, a smaller group of reindeer herders, Ulta. Um, there are, and one could go on, there, of course, used to be a, a great number of Ainu on the island. We learn more about that from Ainu Fever, that great podcast that the two of you have already done. Um, and uh, But um, we're, these are relatively numerically small groups. And only I'll just only say in, in a slightly, in a brief way, that one would... For the indigenous people on this group, and this includes the Uelta and 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 uh, Niv and so forth, uh, it was a very rapid education in global indigenous politics, and a, and for a less cynical term, perhaps indigenous washing. Right. So um, I uh, I would get these phone calls from my friends who would just, or you know, these these uh, communications, these emails, and so forth from friends. I would call them more often, and just and they'd say. Exxon, someone from Exxon called me and wants to know what I think about their oil project. Bruce, why are they calling me? And I'd be, and I'd be like, well, you are president of your local association. And they'd be like, I know, but we're only 15 people, right? And I'd be like, yeah, well, this is what Exxon does. Um, and they actually need you to go show up there. And that was a very serious set of conversations of, of really a rapid, and look, I was a graduate student at the time, and I certainly wasn't in a position, but nonetheless, they discovered very quickly that they both had a voice and that, and that they could use it in very limited situations, sometimes for their own gain, but that they would enable them to learn more, get limited resources for their own community groups or, or uh, community uh, uh, centers and so forth. Uh, to fund newspapers, languages, language training, but it was very small, small ruble amounts, and um, and then of course they learned their place in this global hierarchy, where they're unfortunately still mostly ornamental to a political process. Yeah, they were uh, quickly brought into the world of NGOs and environmental activism, and. <laughs> I can imagine, but like in the Russian context, it must have been very limited. Uh, which brings me to my next question. I'm really curious to hear more about your critique of the word indigenous. I understand your point. At the same time, uh, as you mentioned later, indigenous people themselves kind of rely on that term and that does give them certain political gains. So how do we navigate that space? And like, what would your maybe like solution? What's your vision in light of your critique of the indigenous uh, term? I will answer this question only if you promise to rein me in because it uh, and interrupt me. I want your listeners to know you have full uh, full immunity on the politeness scale to uh, stop me. Um, I'm going to try and give the most direct answer I can to where you started, and then and then let's think about categories more broadly and and just practical ways of addressing those categories. I think that's the best way of doing it. Um, perhaps I've already said on the one hand, and I I don't. The good news is we can ask lots of other people, including indigenous scholars today and so forth, about how they feel. Um, but I can certainly, we, we maybe already touched on this sense of this uh, regular play of having a voice, not having a voice. Um, the kind of work by Pico, uh, Alexander uh, Pico and uh, Alexander Prokhorov, actually in the 1980s, I don't think it's really been shifted too much in the sense of the USSR was a space of. Um, pretty remarkable resource distribution relative to my own native Canada, certainly the United States, but even blessed Scandinavia, which somehow is always at the apex of, of capitalism with a human face, socialism with a human face and so forth. Um, uh, the USSR was awfully good, right, on distributing medical care, education, with a degree of distribution that Canada or the US or Scandinavia never achieved, I think. And, and I think uh, many indigenous people today, not just uh, in Russia today, not only know this better and better, but they also, whether they're scholars or not, but I can tell you that 
Nietzsche and Sakhalin, for example, had a very keen sense that they were better off than the Ainu in Japan. And one could say that a certain amount of that would be Soviet propaganda and so forth, but they had their own limited context, despite all these idioms of closure and so forth. They had their own limited state-approved context with other indigenous peoples, and certainly, and they had a very clear understanding. They communicated to me immediately in 1990 when I finally got to Sakhalin that they would be like, hey, don't make us into some characters of, um, of some Soviet trauma. At least we're not the Ainu. They were very aware that various Japanese government officials kept the Ainu on a very short leash, that maybe Ainu lived better in an economic sense, but that they had very little access to indigenous language, training, schooling, uh, activism of any kind, and so forth. And, and that's one of the great paradoxes, right? Um, in the same way, most, scholar, most listeners, perhaps, who, who know Russia well already, know that there's long been this 20th century Soviet paradox of ethnicity is celebrated in a passport, but it was supposed to go away, right? So indigenous people are celebrated for their place on a developmental scale, but it was also supposed to not matter that they were indigenous. And in many respects, that they knew that they had gained from that to some degree, which is, which is that they had, and certainly they now appreciate much more so, they had vastly better medical care than anyone in Northern Canada did. They had vastly better educational opportunities than anyone in Northern Canada did. They had vastly better indigenous language opportunities than most people in Scandinavia did. And it wasn't because this was denied in any way to Scandinavians um, or to Canadians and so forth, Canadian citizens of indigenous background. But there were simply so many other problems in those places because of the nature of reservations and also because of the relatively harsher circumstances of free market economics that made it seem as if all of these long-term residents of these places had somehow <laughs> in a in some highly liberal way after Rawls and after Locke and Rawls and so forth had somehow exercised choices to maximize political gain under circumstances of colonialism or something right so I, I guess all I'm saying is let's not all gather together here around the hearth to feel sorry for indigenous people because actually, I think whether or not people in today's Russia celebrated in these terms or not, they're fighting their own fights to be treated as equals. Because my experience is that they're probably treated less equally now than they were during the Soviet period. It wasn't great under Stalinism, but they were absolutely, I think, treated more equally under in, during the Soviet period than they are today. Um, if you like, we could touch briefly on questions of indigenism, um, categories, and so forth. But I I don't want to tax your patience. Well, actually, I have a question about this on, on a global scale and, and how you compare, say, around this question of indigeneity and what that means. How do you see the, the experience of the Nifi and other groups, say, in Sakhalin, the Ainu you mentioned, within the larger kind of global context of indigeneity in their experience? Um, not super significantly, um, of course, simply just because today's Russia is less free than other places in terms of um, a political experiment and indigenous peoples, most indigenous peoples today are, of course, in, uh, in a space of political experiment because so many people are really beating their heads against the wall trying to think of some way of getting through to average non-indigenous people to get them to understand, look, we never asked for the imperial experience. We never asked for the colonial experience. We never, thank you very much. It's very nice that all Canadians think they're terribly polite, but there's nothing very polite about not just having a ridiculous treaty with us, you know, in the 19th century, but then systematically breaking it, breaking it, breaking it, breaking it, breaking it, pretending that you're not breaking it, telling us that we're lucky to live in Canada when we never even asked to be Canadian, etc. It's just this enormous political frustration that requires experiment. And today's Russia is not at least very welcoming, I think, of that kind of experiment, that kind of political experiment, especially at the local level, where there's a great anxiety about pleasing the political structure above you. My experience, but both historically, but also in my limited appreciation of the present, is that, and this even extends to other parts of the former USSR where I've worked, um, that the sense of political conservatism slash repression slash authoritarianism slash police brutality and so forth is much greater 
the farther away you get from the capital than it is in the capital, because people are always thinking that they'll have a certain kind of political hypergamy by pleasing people higher above them. Um, but, you know, so there's a certain polite curiosity where my uh, um, colleagues get invited to international indigenous gatherings, often as a, in their own sense of affirmative action. Oh, let's remember, we'll, we'll get the, the, the nice people from Russia too kind of thing. Let's remember them too in a world where it's really a post-Columbian American story, first and foremost, right? Because Europe is so anxious still today to insist that it never had indigenous peoples and it never had slavery. And for anyone listening, I always think that Susan Buck Morse's essay, Hegel and Haiti, is one of the greatest short ways to understand Europe's relationship to slavery, and then by extension, Europe's relationship to indigeneity. But because so many people think that this is really a story of Latin American power, South American power, um, post-Columbian American power, Canadian, etc., Sami in Scandinavia, Nivka and I knew were a bit of an afterthought, you know, of, of course. And that's a shame, right? Because we not only lose, for all of its brutality, the USSR was an incredibly important social laboratory. And a lot of really important work was done in this laboratory of lessons that we still could really afford to remember. And even if I were to double back a little bit um, on, on uh, Rusana's earlier question about categories, right? Even simply, let's just think of the simple Russian language terms which are used. Um, uh, right? Root peoples is already a little better um, than autochthonous or indigenous, which always kind of make me, or First Nation in Canada. All three of those terms are deeply problematic, and I think ultimately it's the efforts that people make but are they problematic because they're 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 term i mean you kind of said this earlier but they're terms and i never i never thought of it this way that the word indigenous itself already presupposes a colonial relationship because you wouldn't have you wouldn't have indigenous or even first nation because that denotes a second nation <laughs> um that we we're still caught in this colonial language by the category of indigeneity. Right. And I'm not trying to sound, I, I really want to underscore here, I'm not trying to sound overly clever or precious that we should all be super politically correct about the terms that we use. You've been hearing me use indigenous already quite a bit in our conversation. And that's because it is a really important, it's an incredibly important and vital category that we use today, but simply by pouring new wine in old bottles, I think, to retrain ourselves to think differently with this term so that we can really think of it as a category of historical experience, a category of peoples who have a shared, a shared historical experience of legal betrayal. I think that's always the, my favorite way of phrasing it. That's the most immediate 19th, 20th century experience of legal betrayal. And people should have more than anything, very good lawyers, right? That's, that's what I hope for in a political sense. But sure, let's just pause very briefly to think about where these words came from and what they mean. Indigenous just means internally created, created from the inside. That's all it means uh, in Latin or, and so forth. Um, Autochtonous comes from auto and thonic, right? Thonic being of the earth and of the ground. People who simply came out of the ground on their own free will as if they were tardigrades or lizards or, or little dinosaurs or, or bacteria. Or, but, but of course, close to flora and fauna like plants. They're like plants, basically, right? So they're not even fully human. That's, of course, the more problematic. And First Nations, I like the first part. Hence, but the nation part, of course, is already an idiom of European political organization, and it seems a very puzzling choice of, of political activism. Although, again, it's a strategic essentialism, if we want to use those terms, that I think is a useful one. All I'm trying to say in very simple terms is that, yes, it's, it, we don't have to feel in a double bind. Indigenous is a vital term today, and let's, let's roll with it. But let's also try and divest ourselves of this kind of fantasy that these people are somehow, that they are a they, that they're homogenous. We can appreciate their own internal differentiations, their own internal struggles, their own political thoughts and cosmologies, but also just simply 
get in the habit of calling them by their names. Well, actually, I was at an art festival, as I mentioned at the very beginning, with a bunch of and the art festival was called Korni. <laughs> so it gave me some ideas too. Uh, yeah, but um, I wanted to keep talking about terms. And my next question was about uh, terms race and racism. Um, does racism towards Kremlin Narode <laughs> exist in Russia? And if so, how does it manifest? I don't want to drag the Russia-Ukraine war into the conversation, but in part, when I uh, was thinking about this question, I thought about this growing movement in Russia coming from indigenous people who are talking about racism and even genocide related to like mobilization and recruitment of men, etc. that was disproportionately affecting ethnic republics. Anyhow, so is there racism? How does it manifest? But also on a more like conceptual level, like is it justified? Can we talk about racism given that Russia as an inheritor of the Soviet Union also <laughs> inherited terms like ethnicity and ethnic politics, et cetera, et cetera? I think it's a super interesting question and there's so much so much good work that's being done on race in the last really 30 years in particular. And sure, I mean, you're showing a good sensitivity. We don't need to kind of Americanize this kind of scholarly conversation. Is there racism? My goodness, of course, how could there not be? But although this might seem a bit anachronistic because you're asking about it today and, and so forth, let's remember what we know of the Stanovshina and others uh, in other movements in the 1930s, the height of the Stalinist purges, um, uh, 1937, one third of all Nivk men were killed. Now, I won't even get into what that meant for religious practices, for family practices, for personal trauma, for all kinds of things at social levels. It just, it was huge. But that was simply because, and you can go through the archives and find these things, local officials were given quotas and were told, make sure that you find a certain numbers of enemies of the people. And what did they do in order to satisfy these quotas? They went to the people who were farthest from them in a social or personal way. And, and it wasn't so much that he was even on a hierarchy that people were thinking in terms of hierarchy. They just said, well, look, we don't know these people, etc. Um, and I'll be, it'll be easier to sleep at night if I just think of them as a group of people, as a bunch of numbers. And, and so disproportionately, they were disproportionately exterminated in the 30s. They were, dis of course, had this policy of creating these industrial growth centers in the um, uh, in the 50s and 60s, um, uh, and during his own brief reign in power, he kept pressing this this policy. But of course, the Russians in European Russia, as it's called, or the Ukrainians, the larger peoples, even the Buryats and uh, Sakha and so forth, all were like, sorry, no way, we're, we're not doing that. All these little villages are there because that's where the good land is. That's where the good resources are. That's where the clean water is. That's where it's quiet. That's where, et cetera. That's where we've lived for decades. Um, so it was the farther away you got from the center, the people were more vulnerable. So sometimes we can call that race because it was exclusively indigenous people who had all of their villages shut down. There was this number I had, bear with me because I'm just loosely citing from the book. It was over two thirds of small villages on Sakhalin were shut down over a 20 year period from the 60s to the 80s. And every single one of them, almost every single one of them was indigenous. Now, whether we call that race or not is um, is one thing, because I really want to give credit to a Soviet experiment that tried to downplay race in the name of equality and to some degree succeeded. It did succeed in some respects. What it, of course, didn't make go away was discrimination, inequality, class. Um, but, you know, the fascinating reason why, and I'll just close by saying this, and I hope this starts to answer your question, as an anthropologist, but also just any scholar, I don't need that. As any scholar who's interested in thinking about histories of inequality, but contemporary practices of inequality, I'm always interested in how different categories move across time and space. And um, one thing that I'm fascinated by race in Russia today is that most people I know from almost any background simply don't have the same decades of training 
to, and this is what Aristotle once called habitus, gleefully adapted by Pierre Bourdieu and all of his wonderful work, where habitus was really a sense of physical discipline and training, right? And we're, we're all physically disciplined by these categories, where I would normally say in North America, where I've grown up, race is the most super police, super disciplined, super self-censored category, where, where people really have a lot of physical habits around what they will or won't say out loud using your inside voice and your outside voice, whereas it's probably the, the site of greatest constraint, whereas probably religion to me is the site of the least constraint where people are gallantly unembarrassed to express discrimination between Catholics or Protestants in Ireland or, or to make fun of Muslims or and so on. And that's the continuum that I grew up with. But and still in the Russian Federation today, what's so fascinating to me is that you can see a progression over 30 years of people realizing they're probably not supposed to use certain terms around a North American, but there isn't this kind of training. But in a certain way, I welcome that only because it just says, um, uh, people on Sakhalin would say, well, right? I'm also a white person. Why should I not be able to get have the same privileges that you do to travel to this country? Why do I need a visa? Why do I need a... And I'd flinch a bit, not because I think the less of them, they're my friends, they're smarter than me, they're this, they're that. I'd, but I'd, I'd, because it, it challenged my own sense of physical discipline. They were crossing my own personal boundaries. And they also they also pointed to your whiteness well, no, and of wanted course. to be a part of yes, it, right? Of and, <laughs> Which is uncomfortable. But, you know, and I won't, I've also <laughs> been working in the Caucasus for the last 20 years or so. And there's a place where, where of course, the Caucasoid race, the idea of people being Caucasian or white was, as, as many of us know from the late 1700s, from Blumenbach, was invented by this by this German scholar at Oxford. Uh, and yet at the same time, they know most people in Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan know perfectly well that they're referred to as, as blacks by people in Russia and Petersburg quite openly. And I think I actually only welcome that in the sense that let's get it all out on the table. Let's get all our shit out on the table so we can think about where it comes from. We can think about how we ourselves are subject to other people's discrimination and there's a simple rule of thumb here, ladies and gentlemen, right? There's a simple rule of thumb, which is that I'd like to live in a world where I treat other people the way I want to be treated, right? And and that that's the kind of the core set of values that I think helps us understand calling people by their names, asking questions rather than giving answers and answering on behalf of someone else, and so on and so on. We're, we're not going to, yes, over time, there's no question that people in the contemporary Russian Federation will learn to mask their racism better. But for now, I really kind of want to celebrate in a, in a paradoxical way, the fact that there's a lot of stuff out on the table. And let's think about it in historical terms and contemporary terms. I want you to ask that question more often to others. And, and, and I could keep going, but I will stop. So Bruce, uh, what do you think of um, growing calls to decolonize Russian studies in light of What's going on in Russia? Yeah, yeah, please. No, that's a great question. Um, look, there's a really, there's a vital and, and really important and satisfying side to it. Let, let me break this into two parts. And there's a frustrating side, which has always already been available to us that I think a lot of people still aren't really getting, right? Um, there's the vital and to me, the most important part is that I think the greatest way to make Russian studies less parochial is to appreciate that if there was an iron curtain that fell over 30 years ago, that we ourselves, most scholars who still participate in the study of this world area, sustain this iron curtain by still thinking of it as a bounded space. And um, to me, one of the simple structural ways of diversifying and decolonizing was a set of workshops that I was part of doing with the Social Science Research Council in the early 2000s that I found so exciting. Slavic studies meets Middle East studies, Slavic studies meets East Asian studies, Slavic studies meets American studies, Slavic, and just Slavic studies meets European studies. What happened to the Baltics in the midst of all of this, et cetera, et cetera, kind of falling between the cracks. And, and there's that kind of thing. There's absolutely, of course, no question along the way, inviting and, and really urgently trying to get new voices and new faces here so that there's, there's a way in which this isn't just a card game 
played by people at elite institutions um, so that we can start to understand, I think, of the work that Krista Goff is doing as a historian at the University of Miami. I mean, she's one of them, like lots of people, the work that's being done at Howard. But I just remember the last time I talked to this um, colleague of mine who also works in Azerbaijan, a lot of her students are Cuban-American. And so she's kind of creating these divides across the the socialist experience and so forth, which is ideally also inviting Cuban-American scholars into this fold, inviting more Chinese scholars, inviting and so on and so on, so that people can think of what, what does socialism mean in Nicaragua or something? (laughs) That's, that's incredibly important as a way of decolonizing. And that where Russia is not always the center, where it's not always a 20th century story, um, and so on. We could, I, I could go on, but that's to me what, just one half of the story. I think, and maybe even just one quarter of it, because I would say more three quarters of this challenge to me is decolonizing our own minds, and that just because of your skin color or your the or where you're from or your historical political experience you grew up in Cuba you grew up in China that's kind of where I started my answer and I think that's important but that doesn't give you a hall pass we all still are part of the same set of structures where um let's think about this the theory data divide where somehow I go to Siberia to get data but I frame it through Pierre Bourdieu and Jacques Derrida and um, it was astounding to me as someone who sat on probably too many committees over my reading grant proposals and that kind of thing of just you'd you'd read this proposal, which uh, expounds with great sensitivity on the political circumstances or the social circumstances of people who were treated in unequal ways. And my research is going to address this inequality. And that's great. And I'm learning their language and I'm speaking their language and I'm reading and all this sounds really kind of pitch perfect. And then you get to the bibliography and there's not a single non-English source. And, but not even that, right? Because it's, again, not even just purely a performative gesture that if you toss in a few Chinese or Russian or, or Azerbaijani or Armenian sources, that somehow that's going to make you a more virtuous person. It's like, I'm sorry, there are, either you're taking Russian thinkers seriously or you're not. They should be part of your theory and your framing. And you're, you're either reading, if you're in the Caucasus, how many people are reading Mamartashvilia, right? No, they go to the Caucasus, they get data, and then they come back and tell us what the Saskia Sassen walked on water in the history of global cities or something. Um, whereas there were Soviet urban planners who had extraordinarily fascinating experimental ideas that we should be. So there's the theory data divide, right? There's the uh, extraordinary um, almost inability to move away from Euro-American sources, um, and there's also not just an urban-rural divide. Most, and I say this. Uh, Strangely enough, in a world of globalization, we not only see that fewer and fewer people want to learn other languages, this is a global problem, not just an American problem, but also even in anthropology, which is my home discipline, which for all of its um, decolonizing efforts to move away from studying the Yunga Bunga and so forth, and, 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 and which is essential and important, nonetheless, more and more graduate students, they don't really want to get out of cities They are comfortable talking to people like themselves, other NGO workers, other activists. And that's not actually diversity. In fact, that's just that's just staying within your own comfort zone. And so I think there's lots of different ways in which we can think about diversity so that we actually not just treat other people in equal ways and address human inequality, but also appreciate that these these other peoples, Nefki, for example, or Slavs or Russians are not all internalized don't all think the same way, don't all act the same way, don't, et cetera. As I, I, I just want to kind of jump in to, to express one of, my, one of my frustrations, and it's an increasing one around this rhetoric of decolonization. And it's a kind of ironic thing considering where a lot of, say, post-colonial studies come from, and that is the total absence of class. I mean, in all of the talk of diversity and voices and stuff, the class question seems to be completely muted. Um, which is ironic considering how, at least in Russian studies 30 years ago, 40 years ago, class was a central category of analysis. Look, and no, I couldn't agree more. And class is also a site of enormous physical training. Um, and uh, even while I appreciate that a lot of people, myself included, will often fear, feel like they, they have an imposter syndrome and so forth in academia where the UK has the class system and the United States has higher education. I always thought that was quite well, well taken. Um, nonetheless, people learn fast. 
I guess all I'm trying to say is I want, I don't want to sound again precious or as if I'm a part or above of this conversation. I, I'm really excited and thrilled by, I want people to talk about decolonization more often, but, but I think the way it plays out, a lot of people feel like, oh, if we just get different voices or if we just get different faces, then everything will be fine. Um, whereas I really want more people to say decolonization is to decolonize myself, is to decolonize my own mind and to actually think about ways in my own scholarship where beyond just pure citation, I'm talking about thinking about writing with people rather than writing about them. Let's, let's start there. And finally, you published this book in the Soviet House of Culture almost 30 years ago. Um, when you look back on it or think and reflect back of, on it, what do you think of your arguments and cl- conclusions you made today? That's a tough one. That's a hardball, <laughs> Sean Gillery. Look, I'm so grateful to that. Finally, it's a funny way to say it, right? I'm grateful to that book because that book was just, it was basically my dissertation, very little edited. And I was in a place when I did this, bless my advisory committee as a, a set of who were so generous with me, right? Um, so I'm grateful to that book that I was able to write it. And, and, and um, one essay, I um, certainly, the messages are, 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 one message of that book was part of a movement, certainly, to recognize non-Russian peoples in the USSR having their own histories and so forth. Um, and I, um, I'm glad to have been part of a broad set of that world and to think of the agency of certain people so that we weren't working. But think of, think of uh, Sheila Fitzpatrick and Viola, other historians who were part of a revisionist trend in Soviet history and not thinking of this kind of top-down um, a stratigraphic sense that there was a sense of agency and participation and Soviet political life and social life and so forth. And, and that certainly, is, as you took up earlier in your questions now, um, that was part of the book. And I, and I think that uh, that was one piece in a broader edifice. Um, I really want to say, though, more, um, not in an overly modest way, but more in a projective sense, that, of course, the book has not succeeded in one respect, which is that to me, uh, and this touches on Rosanna's work, I hope, too, and, and, and another generation, when I was there, and to me, I was just so re- relieved to get a foot in the door after a year and a half of living in Moscow. I loved it. My God, I, had, I still miss Moscow as a city. I have a lot of, I just, it, I feel very, uh, I was just so welcome there. I still feel very at home there as a visitor, and, and um, I miss it, and um by the time I finally got a foot in the door and got to Sakhalin, I thought, this is so great, but also so many more people are going to follow and study this world area because it's so fascinating and so amazing. And it's essentially, it's a part of East Asia. And and even not in all seriousness, this is not a digression because I think this is important. When I went on the job market in 1992, I applied once for a job in East Asian studies, not least because I, I didn't have a job, so why not apply to anything? But I applied at, uh, to a job at Tulane in East Asian Studies, and and they actually called me in for a long list interview at a hotel room. And they used to still do that. We don't do that anymore in most places. Um, and they just said, "We really don't want to take your time. We really don't want to raise your expectations here because we really can't give you a job. But we all wanted to know why you thought you could teach in East Asian Studies." having worked on well, an indigenous people in the USSR, what were you thinking? And I looked at them and I kind of chuckled. I appreciated their honesty. And I just looked at them and I just said, and, and I don't, I know this will sound overly self-confident, but I, I did hold my own because I had nothing to lose. And I just looked at them and I said, because they're in East Asia, you know, and then I just looked at them and I was just like, and I said, look, I know you're not going to hire me. You're not going to hire me, but I just really... With all due respect, I think East Asian Studies has a problem if we need to have this conversation, actually. Now, again, that makes me sound a bit pompous. and I, But what I am trying to say in a more practical sense is, I've really, for a long time, but it started in my work there, said, look, it's not, and it's not because I was so such a genius. I was just saying, hey, look, there's all this work in China. We need Chinese scholars telling us what this work says. And... Uh, because of my own inabilities, I've yet to learn Chinese or Japanese. There are some Japanese scholars who have really done important work to tell us about Mifki. Of course, I knew you can tell me more. But the but 
the point is, is that I got into that because to me, yes, of course, we, we all have to do two things. Of course, we have to realize a certain realpolitik where these people are at the periphery of empires and other people's power conversations. I get that, of course. In that respect, Sakhalin Island, the Russian Far East is a periphery. It's a borderland. At the same time, it's a center unto itself. For people who live there, I love how people, uh, one of my professors in graduate school always used to say, some people would say that Vico, the, you're the Italian philosopher, Vico led an obscure life. But Vico's life probably wasn't obscure to Vico. And I love that in all seriousness, because it's like, look, people know they're on the peripheries of other people. They all know that. But their lives are central to themselves. And these women, when I, I was interviewing these nine-year-old women on Sakhalin who would tell me about having a Japanese boyfriend, about how they would, about how their parents knew English or Korean or Japanese or Chinese, not all of them, they weren't like backflip polyglots, but they knew one other language because they were tradesmen. And that to me, because they, that was the center of a world which has its own stories to tell. And in that respect, the book has not succeeded in kind of creating at least, and I don't mean that this was its mission or that, uh, but again, I don't want to, the book was not overly important in that respect, but I'm pushing. I wish one message of the book had more traction today because most people still talk about in English about the Russian Far East as a borderland. And, and while I get that, of course, it's a land of extractivism. It's a land of this and that. And look, uh, along those lines, let me give props. I, I love this book by Frank Bier and Caroline Humphrey. I tell everyone to read it at the edge of the world or at the edge, at the edge, I think it's on the edge. Uh, I'm sorry, whoops, I really should have thought about that in advance, considering I love the book so much. Um, it does this fascinating comparison of the, exactly the kind of collaborative work we should be doing by thinking about how how uh, Russians are understanding their own position on the border, how Chinese are thinking about the border is important politically as an idiom, but let's, let's also, while we make space for that, let's, let's understand this world area as kind of a giant world area with just its own histories, philosophies, cosmologies, social lives that aren't just echoes of Beijing or Moscow or et cetera, et cetera. That, in that respect, we really have a lot of conversations we still need to have. That was Bruce Grant. Bruce Grant is professor and chair of anthropology at New York University. He is author of several books, including In the Soviet House of Culture, A Century of Perestroikas, and The Captive and the Gift, Cultural Histories of Sovereignty in Russia and the Caucasus. His current research explores the early 20th century Pan-Caucasus journal Mola Nasreddin, that ran from 1905 to 1931, as an idiom for rethinking contemporary Eurasian space and authoritarian rule within it. And I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova. And the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. And because it, you know, it's sponsored by listeners like you, you should take a moment and sponsor us if you aren't already. And even if you are, maybe you can chip in a little bit more. That would be wonderful. But if you are sponsoring us, that's okay, too. That's fine. We're happy just to have you sponsor us. Um, if you like what we do here, please drop us a line. Um, let us know what you think. If you don't like what we do, you could also drop us a line. Let us know what you think, though. We, we might not answer those. Um, and it would be a big help. Um, as you heard maybe at the beginning of the show, uh, uh, about a third of people who have heard of this podcast or was introduced to it found out about it on, on social media. So, you know, helping us plug the show on social media is really, really important and helpful. So if you could take a moment to do that, that will be great. Also, make sure you take a moment to take our survey. Um, there will be a link in the show notes of this episode, or you can go to eurasianot.org and find it there. Um, I guess that's it. So until next time, bye-bye. Bye. Bye.